touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we're going to do another one of our episodes where we start to focus on a company. This will be at least a two-parter because the company's been around, well, since the mid-70s. Also, and they're uh, kind of important. Yeah, made some big contributions to the world of tech, as it turns out. We're talking, of course, about Microsoft. And um, to really look at the origins of Microsoft, we're going to go back quite a bit, back to 1955, when on October 28th, a certain Bill Gates was born to a wealthy family in Washington. Um, he, he came from a not-so-humble background. He, he actually was born into a, a very well-to-do family, um, and that gave him certain advantages. He was able to take advantage of a, a, a pretty, pretty interesting education. He went to Lakeside, which is a private school. And that's where he met Paul Allen, who would also be become important to this company. Yep. Paul Allen, who is uh, two years older than Bill Gates. So it was interesting that these two struck up a friendship. They they were separated by a couple of years in age and in grade. But uh, both of them became fascinated with a machine at the school. It's a teletype machine. And you may, oh, my droogies, have forgotten what these machines are like. Things changing so scory and everyone quick to forget. But a teletype machine, yeah, essentially it was using telephone lines and you could send information across and it would type out the information. And uh, they began to um, kind of uh, figure out ways of playing with it and learning how it worked and manipulating it. Supposedly, uh, according to Wired, the pair exhausted the school's annual budget for time on this computer within a matter of weeks. And they soon started to um, work with a with a local computer contract center to um, find software bugs in exchange for extra time on the computers. Interesting. So they liked the computers so much that they would work in order for them to be able to continue to, uh, to use play it, yeah. on them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1972, according to the BBC, Gates used the teletype machine to manipulate school schedules for a purpose that I find incredibly creepy. It was to uh, to try to find the uh, get the right girls, a.k.a. the girls that he thought were, were kind of pretty into his classes with him. Yeah, essentially, you know, he was just anyone who had uh, who had, was wanting certain classes. He wanted to make sure that. That the the right mix of people were in the classes he was in, <laughs> the right mix of people being all the cute girls. And, Bill Gates, uh, social engineer. Yeah, yeah, hmm. a little creepy, a little creepy. Uh, however, in 1973, he uh, yeah, he graduated, <laughs> graduated, yeah. Uh, began to attend Harvard. Yep, and that's where he met someone else who would become really important in the Microsoft story, Mr. Steve Ballmer. Steve they lived Ballmer. down the hall from each other in the same dormitory. Right, so. Uh, then we move over into 1974, moving right along. And uh, that's when the ma- the magazine Popular Electronics published its article about the Altair 80- 8800. It, uh, it, it was called uh, the world's first microcomputer kit to rival commercial models. Um, and yeah, and it was it was talking about the Altair and Intel's uh, 4004 chip. And, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this was this was the, the dawning of the personal computer age, the Altair was, of course, a kit that you could order and then build your own computer. Now, this was incredibly early on. So microcomputers at this point were pretty primitive, and there there wasn't a whole lot of software that you could run on them because uh, up until this point, computers were really pretty much 
only in research facilities, in in large companies that needed databases. They weren't again. You kind of had to rent time on them if you were going to really use them on a personal level. Right, and and there wasn't much to do on a personal level. I mean, they, these were really machines meant to do calculations. There just weren't. I mean, it was not like it was not like there was a lot of word processing software, even let alone games. Although, of course, anytime you have a machine and you've got people and they are smart and they are bored, they will make games. They will for make games machine. absolutely. So there well, there are the, games. There are small things that are easy to uh, easy to program. So right. But. So, uh, but the Altair comes out, and uh, the company that made the Altair, MITS, M-I-T-S. Uh, invited readers to submit programming languages for the computer. Now, in early 1975, as in like the day or uh, two days after this this issue had hit the supposedly, the shelves, supposedly, um, I think Paul Allen came like came like running down the hall and was like, "Bill, check this out." Yeah, he had he had the copy of the magazine and he said, "Let's." Do this. Let's build a computer language for the Altair, and we can uh, we can be the ones to to make history. And they, from at least one account, the account that I read in the BBC, they apparently told Mitz that they in fact had the programming language before they had you know built it. <laughs> but uh, not, it's not to say that they didn't have the skills. They certainly did. They just they just didn't have the work done yet. Right. But they pretty much committed themselves to it. And then over the course of several hours, uh, maybe a couple of days, they built their computer language, which was a variant of the basic computer language, which had been invented in the 60s. But this right, was the right. first one for this particular chipset. Yes. Uh, they had actually been playing with basic way back in high school together. Right. So... Now they created a simulator of the Altair on another machine, uh, the DEC PDP-10. They had one. They they ended up creating an emulator for the Altair so that they could actually test this programming language because otherwise they'd have no way of knowing if it would work or not. They didn't have access to an Altair. So uh, they then submit this programming language to MITS. And uh, and it's met with uh, some approval, so much so that Paul Allen was made the VP and director of software for the company. So I would say that that was a rousing success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, also Bill, Bill Gates and Paul Allen both moved to um, to its headquarters in Albuquerque. Yep. Albuquerque, which just makes me think of Weird Al Yankovic. But anyway. Or Bugs Bunny. Or Bugs Bunny. Should have taken that left in Albuquerque. <laughs> but uh, uh, so on, on November 29th, Bill Gates sends a letter to Paul Allen and the letter contains a certain name in it. It is Micro-Soft which is the earliest known written reference of the company name, although they had been talking about this for a while beforehand, according to most interviews. But this right. was the first time, yeah, that, but, know, the first, the earliest written reference anyone has sure. found. To they, that they had also name. tossed around something like a, like Gates and Allen Inc. or something like yeah, that. But. Exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they came up with this idea. And by the end of the year, the partnership that would eventually become Microsoft had earned $16,005 in revenue and had a grand total of three employees. Uh, when you get to the next year, 1976, this is a huge year in personal computers, uh, a huge year that people probably at the time could not have predicted would turn out to be so instrumental in shaping what the future of personal computing would be. This is the same year that two other individuals... 
some some rather uh, uh, pranksterish types. The, the Steves, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. They they had uh, decided to uh, work together to build their own personal computer. Now keep in mind, Gates and Allen aren't building computers; they're building, they're building programming per- languages. Right, right. Not not even not even operating systems. Yet. Right, not even. Yeah, this is this is before personal computers really had what we would call an operating system. This is sure. when you would put a. Uh, some you would hook it up to some form of media, and then you would use uh, a a a line command to run a program. But that's about it. There's it's it, not so advanced as to call it uh, an operating system. So Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak are designing their own computer, which the first one was called the Apple One, uh, which didn't you know they they only made a, a few hundred of them, as I recall. And the original price was six hundred sixty-six dollars and sixty-six cents huh. for the Apple One, uh, but they were um, they got to meet with Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, they were chatting early at the Palo Alto Homebrew Computer Club about the possibility of using programming languages. So. At, even at the earliest days, Microsoft and Apple had a relationship. It wasn't a formal relationship at that point, but they knew each other. You know, people knew yeah, one yeah. another in these communities. This, uh, this homebrew club was a was a big organization. I mean, maybe not big, but but certainly a lot of um, people who had become key players in the industry over the years uh, started out uh, started there. out yeah. there. And uh, for for a large part, it was it was hobbyists at the time. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, folks folks like uh, like like Steve and Bill were. Um, much more business minded, I think, than than most other kids hanging out there. Yeah, yeah, they they definitely had a bigger picture in mind than just hey, this is this, hey, this is, is a, cool. This is a really yeah, this is a really yeah. cool device. I want to see what else I can do with it. Some some people were more than content to just keep it a hobby, but others were seeing the potential for this to be a game changer, to mm-hmm. be an, its own industry. Well, in March of 1976, Bill Gates delivered the opening address at the first annual World Altair Computer Convention, which, as far as I know, is no longer happening. I don't, <laughs> I've, I've never been don't to think one. That it, I would wonder what it would look like if you were to attend a uh, World Altair Computer Convention in 2013. Uh, Paul Allen resigned from MITS that year, MITS that year, to work full-time on the Microsoft Project. And on November 26, 1976, Allen and Gates trademarked the term Microsoft. They had since lost the hyphen. Yeah. Now it's just Microsoft, no hyphen, just one word. Uh, that same, uh, around that same time, Bill Gates officially drops out of Harvard. He had been, uh, he took a break for a little while, then he went back. And at this point, he had decided that he wanted to concentrate full time right. on Microsoft. Um, Gates also writes an open letter to hobbyists where he addresses the issue of software piracy. Now, keep in mind, this is the earliest days of personal computing, and already there was this this interesting uh, interesting dichotomy. Okay, You had people who wanted to have software freely available, which would then encourage more people to get into the hobby and more innovation. And then you had the people who were developing software who were saying, in order for if me to. If you don't yeah. let us make money, then we can't continue making cool stuff for you to play with. Right. So, yeah, yeah, there's no incentive for me to put in work if I'm not getting any reward from it. Right. I mean, I, I love this as much as you guys do, but a guy's gotta eat. I dropped out of Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he wrote this open letter to, uh, to address these problems of software piracy, which is, it's kind of funny because when you think about it, you know, we, we're more than three decades later and we still have the same issues. Uh, it's now just on a, a, a much, much larger scale. scale. Yeah, exactly. 
That next year, 1977, uh, Bill Gates becomes the president and Paul Allen the vice president of Microsoft. It is now an official company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before they were uh, considered to be general partners in this. And this um, was the first time that uh, that they delineated their, their responsibilities within the company. Right. And Gates at this point owned uh, more of Microsoft than Allen. Uh, actually, that's true all the way through the, the history. The, of the it, history, yeah. yeah. So Gates uh, had a greater part of the ownership of the company, and they begin with a, a license deal to Apple. They were the ones who provided the Apple version of BASIC uh, called Microsoft AppleSoft BASIC. So that's interesting to me, too, that the programming language for the Apple II computer was, in fact, developed by Microsoft, because a lot of people think then Microsoft and Apple have always had a very contentious, uh, yeah, acrimonious relationship. Mm-hmm. Like they, they were constantly butting heads, and that's not really true. In fact, there were a lot of times throughout for, the history for, for a long time they were they were really trying to um to help each other out. Yeah, they were working together because when you think about it, they're in two. They were in two different businesses. Okay, so you had Apple that was developing hardware. all of their own hardware. Yeah. And software. And, uh, and Microsoft and- was just software. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like they were in direct competition with one another, especially in those early days. They were all looking at a burgeoning industry and saying, how can we make this grow? Yeah, yeah. And so, everyone was trying to make money yeah, yeah. by working together. You can make more money. Yeah. Um, speaking about money, uh, in 1978, uh, Microsoft sales of uh, basic 8080 alone uh, exceeded $1 million. Yeah, so... Incredible. The the company itself has been around essentially two years. M- depending upon how you want to define the actual company, you could say as many as three, but it really the, that first year it was really a partnership and not an, an official company at all. So they've already hit one million in revenue and sales. This is this is phenomenal. They also developed uh, a programming language for another early personal computer that uh, has. There are people who love this machine. One of the Commodores, right? Yep. The Commodore Personal Electronic Transactor, or PET, the Commodore PET. So, uh, yeah, they, they developed the basic programming language for that as well. The next year, 1979, that's when they made their big move, literally. Uh, from, from Albuquerque back up to Washington State. Yep. Now, they weren't, they weren't in their current headquarters yet. That's, they hadn't quite moved that far. They went into, uh, to Bellevue, which was actually not very far from where Paul Allen and Bill Gates grew up. And, uh, they formed the Consumer Products Division of Microsoft. This was an idea to, Develop and market retail products and to provide support for customers. And they actually started to develop their own in-house games. Uh, right. Uh, Microsoft Adventure came out of that. Yeah. People who remember Adventure remember it fondly. It was, uh, I mean, by any measure of today's standards, it's an incredibly primitive game. But at the time, it was one of those things that people just fell in love with. But that they, they invested in this. They they tried to develop it. And ultimately, they decided that it wasn't really performing up to their expectations. So they eventually folded it back into the overall company. Right, right. Uh, d- during that year, they grew from 13 to 28 employees. So then and, and basic was was doing really well. It was kind of on the verge of becoming the standard language for for microcomputers. Right. I think it's funny. 13 to 28 employees, you could say within that year, they more than doubled in size. <laughs> From 13 to 28. Uh, humble beginnings. Now, th- if you move up to the next year, to 1980, that's when Bill Gates makes uh, a very famous hire. He hires his old buddy from Harvard, Steve Ballmer. 
And Steve Ballmer becomes Microsoft's first business manager. Steve Ballmer was the salesman. He was the guy who was known as he, he just, he understands the sales aspect. He can build these relationships between different companies. He can develop them because, you know, most of Microsoft's business was really in partnering with other companies, not so much uh, uh, directing business directly at the consumer. Right, right. Yeah. So, since, as we said, they were uh, just creating software at the time, it was, you know, all convincing other people to... Uh, yeah, let them develop programming languages for their platforms. Right. Things like, you know, the stuff that you would see that Microsoft had a hand in, where the, that was the stuff that would come when you bought the, the computer you were buying. Like when you bought an Apple II and you started programming stuff, you were using the Microsoft programming language. But it, it wasn't like you bought a computer and then you ran out to grab the Microsoft copy of whatever software it was. It was all packaged together. So the business relationships were key in those early years with Microsoft. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of those business relationships, in July, they um, entered an agreement for the upcoming IBM PC. The, the, the code name of this project was Chess. Yeah. IBM has a history with Chess. Uh, they, they would... Actually, at this point, it would be a future with chess <laughs> because IBM's uh, IBM would famously uh, uh, show that a, a computer chess champion could defeat a, the human grand chess champion. But at any rate, yes, the, this this uh, code name project was for the uh, developing software and operating system information for an upcoming personal computer developed by IBM. Yeah. And, and, and again, uh, Microsoft at the time was not, was not creating operating systems. This was really kind of one of the first that was out there. Um, they, Gates and Balmer wound up buying something called, uh, QDOS, Quick and Dirty Operating System, yeah. for about 50 grand. Um, right. And, and they, uh, they, they, they wound up, uh, repackaging it or uh, recoding, recoding. Yeah, they, they essentially use that as, think of it as using that as the foundation to build their own operating system on top of. So we don't mean to say that they just took, they just went oh, right. out and bought one Not thing and then repackaged it and then sold it. They definitely did, Microsoft did change that, but it, that was the basis of that operating system. Just as you would say that there are lots of different uh, Linux distributions out there that take the basic Linux and then create, create something. something on top of it that sure. makes it it makes mm-hmm. it more usable for a certain uh, part of the audience. Right, right. But they uh, renamed it Disk Operating System and licensed it to IBM for eighty grand, um, which, which sounds like a small amount, and it was even at the time a relatively small amount. But um, but they also had a uh, uh, an agreement to earn on top of any any PC sales that the and system went on to. In addition to that, they were even more savvy. Because they retained the licensing rights so that they could license that same operating system to other manufacturers. Right. Now, for those who aren't aware, when the IBM compatible computers started coming out, they, these were machines that were built by other companies besides IBM that could run the same sort of software because they were using a very similar or identical chipset to the IBM PC. So that meant that Microsoft, because they retained this licensing agreement they, that they could license to other manufacturers, could provide the operating system. So that meant that suddenly you had all these different machines from different manufacturers that could do essentially the same thing as the IBM PC, but because they were offered by someone else and they were using perhaps different uh, materials, sometimes the price would be significantly lower. This is what would eventually – one of the factors, I should say, that would eventually lead IBM to pull out – of the consumer PC market, because once this 
train got set in motion, it really was hard to derail it. It meant that IBM had to compete essentially against itself. They had invented the approach that they wanted to take, and then everyone else could just copy it. Um, Apple, by the way, had a very similar situation for a while after Steve Jobs was um, politely asked to leave, <laughs> or mm-hmm. he left on his own, depending upon whom you ask. Uh, and then Apple did a very similar thing where they actually licensed out the Apple design to other manufacturers. When Jobs came back, he put a stop to that. Technically, I think it had already kind of stopped before he came back, but he definitely, but he definitely said no more down. of that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this was one of those things where it was a great move for Microsoft, maybe not such a great move for IBM PC, but it meant that Microsoft had guaranteed yet more revenue down the line by licensing this operating system to other manufacturers. Uh, they also started to develop their own hardware in the form of special microprocessor circuit boards that could allow the computer computers that have uh, are based around one particular design to run programs that were built for other types of computers. So in other words, it's kind of like an emulator. So, you know, like if you had an Apple II computer and I had an IBM computer and I had this program I wanted you to be able to use, you couldn't use it on your Apple II. The, the, the architecture is totally different. It just wouldn't work. So what Microsoft was starting to do was build up microchips or, or actually circuit boards that you could insert into a computer, put it in one of the computer's expansion slots. To make that software run. Yeah. And so uh, it wasn't like it was a magic pill that would work on every computer. They had only a few specific ones that would allow one type of com- computer to run one type of other software. So, uh, But it was an interesting move that they were getting into hardware. This was their first time of really doing that. Otherwise, they were just concentrating on code. Now, um, then in 1981, that's when we actually get... That was the get, official launch of MS-DOS. Yeah, Microsoft Disk Operating System, op, uh, and that's introduced on the IBM PC. Um, and that's also when uh, Microsoft got a visit from a certain Mr. Steve Jobs. And uh, he, Steve Jobs, arrived at Microsoft to give them an early look at what would be the Macintosh computer. This is 1981. The Macintosh computer does not come out until 1984, so this is several years in advance of the debut of this computer, and, and it just shows really that the development cycle for these kinds of devices can take several years. Oh, sure, and and also just shows the strength of the relationship at that stage in the game. Oh, well, yeah, that, you know, definitely. it's you know be, being being willing to show something that secretive at that point. Yep, and uh, uh, it was it was kind of fun. I think. Um, uh, People were referring it to it as a, a wonderful machine, and uh, eventually there would be a, a funny little acronym about that, but I'll get to that in a little bit later. <laughs> so that same year, uh, Microsoft incorporated, but was still a privately held company. They did not have an initial public offering yet. And Gates uh, was became the president and chairman, and uh, Allen became the executive vice president. And by the end of the year... Their revenues hit $16 million. And they had 128 employees. Yeah, that's that's a great number for a computer uh, programmer, 128, because it's falling into <laughs> that, that pattern there. Um, in 1982, the uh, Microsoft developed something internally called the Microsoft Local Area Network, or Milan. And uh, that was to connect all their in-house development computers together. So this was essentially uh, a, a very early computer network that Microsoft was using. There had been other computer networks before this one, obviously. I mean, ARPANET existed at this time, and that was a, a network of networks. That was the predecessor to the Internet. But um, this is an early implementation 
of computer networks. And uh, and at that time, a man named James Town became the president and COO of Microsoft. Right. And Bill, Bill Gates uh, hired him to kind of take over the, the operational duties. Exactly. Yeah. And this is something that we would see throughout Microsoft's uh, history as well, is that Bill Gates really wanted to concentrate on developing business to develop uh uh, actual product. And, and, and as he became more and more of a personality, um, within, I mean, not just within the company, but, but in terms of, of marketing power. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, he, you know, the, the, the day to day stuff has never really interested him, I think, as much as, uh. Right. And, and it just meant that it took away time from the stuff he really liked to do, like to work on projects and, and to, uh, to lead teams to develop new products. So, I mean, we understand why he was, uh, why he was doing this, but it was kind of an interesting move that he he hires someone else from outside the company to become the president COO. Right, right. Uh, that was also the year that uh, work on Windows originally began um, under the code name Interface Manager. Yeah, so uh, that might also surprise you because everyone remembers that when the Macintosh debuted in 1984, that that the graphics user interface was such a huge leap from the old days. Now, granted. Again, again, they had seen the this early these early prototypes of the Mac already. Yeah. So. And, and also remember that the graphics user interface wasn't that new. As it turns out, Xerox had been working on that for several years. But precisely uh, to the average computer uh, or the potential computer customer, it was revolutionary. So 1982 uh, comes and goes. We get up to 1983. That's when they actually announce that they're working on the graphics user interface. Uh, at that same year, Paul Allen is diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. So he ends up stepping back from working full-time at Microsoft. Uh, simultaneously, Jamestown uh, resigned as the COO. Yeah, and uh, and so a new president and COO comes on for Microsoft. His name is John Shirley, and he came from the Tandy Corporation. I remember Tandy Computers. <laughs> Me too. I, I I read that and I was like Tandy. Yeah, Aww. it's been so long since I've seen that name that uh-huh. it was yeah it kind of brought back memories. Um, and that's when Bill Gates became the he was essentially the chairman of the board and the and and an executive vice president, which is an interesting combination. And uh and that's the same year that Microsoft Word for MS DOS 1.0 launched. So we get our first example of Microsoft's. Land-breaking, amazing word processor that I could not stand for the longest time. <laughs> Which is what I'm looking at my show notes on right now. Now so, I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, not it, not not for MS DOS one point, you know. No, but, no, yeah. no. We we've actually upgraded from uh, MS DOS one in the office. Shockingly enough, we now are on <laughs> Windows three point one. Uh, that's a that's a joke. We get that next year. Uh, so, around, around 1983, by the way, there were just lots of software agreements going on with Apple. Um, they, yeah. they were they were both kind of just just really continuing that relationship and helping each other out. Which again is funny, uh, considering the way the 1984 iconic commercial comes into play. Well, also in 1983, the company hit 50 million dollars in revenue and so had uh, over 200 employees at that point. Phenomenal growth within the company. Uh, 1984, that's when the Macintosh launches. And, of course, the famous commercial was very much um, trying to to get that Orwellian feeling, the idea of uh, the IBM computer is very 
very uh, uniform in design, and there's no personality there, and it's supposed to strip away anything that's fun. Or, and the Macintosh was this creative powerhouse that yeah, um, and it's for the individual who has for the, dreamers you know, and exactly. Thinkers, yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be for the rainbow connection, hmm. the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Uh, this was not necessarily a shot across the bow at Microsoft. This was a shot at IBM. So, right, right. Uh, again, and one of those things where we think back and like, but didn't Apple hate Microsoft because of that? You know, think about that commercial. Well, that commercial was really aimed at the way IBM was doing business, not at or the way IBM was was portrayed. You know, that and the, this is that's a business computer. That's for business. You know, this is something that's for the creative individual. Um, so it really wasn't a shot at Microsoft. Uh, and then that's, you know, Microsoft actually ended up taking a big role in developing software for the Macintosh program. A lot of those early programs on the Mac came from Microsoft. And um, the uh, program that Microsoft engaged in for developing software for the Macintosh was called SAND. This is that cute acronym I was talking about. Steve's amazing new device. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone at Microsoft thought that Steve Jobs and and the work that he was doing over at Apple was pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh yeah, uh, one of the software projects was Microsoft Excel, which was the spreadsheet program that later would come to the PC. It actually hit the uh the Mac first mm-hmm. or the Macintosh, I should say. I shouldn't call it a Mac cuz it's, it's technically it's not really a different a, type of computer. Right, right. They they started actually all the way back in 1982 um in on an agreement with Apple to create uh, that spreadsheet program that would mm-hmm. become Excel eventually, mm-hmm. um uh business graphics and also a database yeah. structure. Yeah. So the relationship's tight right now. And uh, and and they were not allowed uh they they the terms of the agreement were to um, uh, reserve it for Apple for a year before nice. Microsoft nice. could use it themselves. All right. So we're picking back up and we're in 1985 now. That's the year that Microsoft Windows ships. On November 20th. Yep. So this is a this is really a graphical extension of MS-DOS. It's not really a full graphics user interface operating system in its own right. It's more like something that gets kind of piggybacked onto the MS-DOS operating system. So it's a little different from the the future versions of Windows. Really, you have to get to to Windows 3.1 before we start seeing a Windows operating system that looks familiar to someone who who uses it today. Right, right. This was a very, very basic first attempt there. Yep. Uh, but it was successful, and the company uh, revenues hit about $140 million. They had up to, uh, what, what was it, 910 employees, so yeah. just under a thousand at this point. Uh, Bill Gates was becoming a very public figure at the time. Uh, he was, he was being shown on the cover of all kinds of magazines, um, and, uh, uh, marketing campaigns, uh, calling, calling Microsoft, you know, like trying to be the IBM of software and, uh, getting, getting the concept of a computer on every desk and in every home were right. starting to come out. Yeah, it's funny too, because, uh, if you start looking back at some of the predictions that, People, even people like Bill Gates had about how many computers would be in the home within X number of years. The amazing thing was their predictions at the time seemed astronomical. So ambitious. Everyone right. was thinking that is just that's Impossible. insane. Who would who would need that? <laughs> and then mm-hmm. ten years down the road, you'd realize that they were being incredibly conservative. Yeah. That you know people weren't taking into account things like Moore's law, which states that. Not only are computers getting more powerful over time because we're able to fit more discrete elements upon one square inch of silicon, 
but also that the price goes down because the manufacturing processes get more efficient and we end up learning better ways to build computers. So with prices going down and the complexity coming down because people are figuring out better ways of designing operating systems, it was pretty natural for people to want to adopt computers. I mean, a lot of these were things that people kind of wanted, but they were a little intimidated by, especially in the early days, because they didn't have that hobbyist mentality. Sure, sure. And so it wasn't until these uh, the these these GUI systems, the, uh, yeah, the, the GUI graphics, systems, <laughs> graphic interfaces. I like that... calling them GUIs too. <laughs> I have no problem with that. But so with with all of this money that they were making, and and with this this kind of outrageous number of employees, they relocated to Redmond. Yeah, which Redmond, is, mm-hmm. just outside Seattle. Yep. And this is, uh, in fact, where Microsoft makes its headquarters today. Uh, they do, of course, have corporate uh, locations in other parts of the world, but that's their home base is right, in right. Redmond. From, from, from 1986. I did not mention that we had moved on oh, in right. the years yes. at this point. Yeah, time waits for no man or Microsoft. Marches on. Yes, it does. And uh, so Microsoft then also that year held its initial public offering, the IPO. Now, this, of course, is when a private company becomes a publicly traded company. And so ownership is then spread out through shares. You can buy shares in the company, and that represents a certain percentage of ownership of that company. Uh, it opened at uh, $21 per share. Yep. And by the end of that day, the stock price was at $28 per share. So it showed a, a high level of confidence not in bad. the company. Yeah. yeah, not bad at all. And they raised about $61 million, which at the time was the most money any tech company had raised in an IPO. Uh, since then, of course, the, that's changed. But even when you factor in things like inflation, it still not, hasn't held up. But at the time, it was incredibly impressive. Now, uh, that year, they also introduced Microsoft Works, which had basic word processing, spreadsheet, database, and other functions all kind of wrapped up together. And they held the first international conference on CD-ROM technology. This is 1986. This is 1986. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, I, I'm pretty sure that I still had five and a quarter inch floppies on my yeah, home no, PC I, I, at that yeah. time. A three and a half inch disk drive to me was the future in 1986, <laughs> let alone right. a CD. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, uh, what we're talking about here is that a lot of the, if, if you aren't familiar with the computers from back in the 80s all the way up into the early 90s, they used magnetic storage media like disks, disks that had uh, these these little. They were called floppy disks, not necessarily because they were floppy, but that was to differentiate from the hard disk that you would have part as integrated part of a computer. Right, right, and 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 part part of the floppy disks was in fact a. Uh, I mean, the disk itself would usually be rigid for. Um Yes. Safety purposes, right. but, uh, but, but the but, film, but the film inside yeah, was the, was a film, a magnetic film, right? And so uh, they they the original ones, well, original ones came up in like seven inch, seven point something inches, but uh, they were approximately as big as my Civic. <laughs> but five and a quarter was the standard by the time I was getting into computers. That was what the Apple II used, and then three and a half inch discs. It's funny because as the size of the disk went down, the capacity the of the disk capacity. went up. Yeah. yeah, and that was one of those things that, as a kid, before I understood anything about computers, just confused the heck out of me. Huh. Like, how is it that this can hold more chapters of my dad's book than this one? Ah, it doesn't matter. Let's erase it. Because um, <laughs> I have saves I want to make. Uh, it, well, the CD, of course, was going to blow all of that out of the water. The optical drive had the capacity to hold way more information and access it much more quickly than Magnetic did. But not but, for a good few years. Yeah, and this was an early, early discussion where Microsoft could see that the writing was on the wall and that that was going to be an important technology, and they wanted to get on the forefront of that. Uh, in 1987, a new marketing manager joins Microsoft, and she would become very important in the life of the 
co-founder of the company. Right. This is uh, this is Melinda French. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, Melinda French and Bill Gates first met at a Microsoft press conference event in Manhattan that year. Yep. And she began to work for the company. And uh, and we can I, I'm imagining that the little hearts appeared over their heads shortly thereafter. Um, Microsoft launched Windows 2.0 that year. And uh, we're still not quite to the level where it's a version of Windows that most of us would recognize. And they also announced that they would release Windows or Microsoft Excel for Windows. So now we would get Excel. It would no longer be uh, exclusive to the Macintosh computer. It would now also come to any PC that could run Windows. And they also bought a company called Forethought Incorporated, which developed a presentation software called PowerPoint. So the, the, if you've ever seen a PowerPoint presentation, you know, it's, it's designed so that you create slides, uh, which you can either print as sheets of paper. You could, in the old days, print them as slides and put them in a slide projector, because I used to do that. Oh, I'm old. Uh, or you just use them on your computer and you project them digitally for, you know, one of those typical presentations. Usually you're standing up on a stage and, you have a lectern there and a little clicker in your hand, and I've done this way too many times. Yeah. Mm. But anyway, PowerPoint, they actually bought the company that developed it, uh, and they saw this as an opportunity to kind of bring PowerPoint into the suite of productivity software that they had been developing in-house since their early days. So all that word processing and spreadsheet, they were saying, you know, this is a good business for us to be in. It's it's more and more offices in the United States and around the world are starting to incorporate computers into their everyday experiences. And if we're the ones who are creating the software that allows them to get business done, we will do crazy amounts of business. And it turned out to be really, really true. Um, so they, they were jumping uh, ahead on that one. And they also became, uh, they, they, they turned Forethought Incorporated from a, an acquired company into an, a full division within Microsoft called the Graphics Business Unit. Uh, that's also when they launched Microsoft Bookshelf, which was a CD-ROM, which, again, very early for CD-ROMs. And the, the CD-ROM had 10 reference works on the disk. And this was the first real general purpose application on CD-ROM for PC users. Not that many people could really take advantage of it at this time. Uh, you know, just like any new technology, when CD-ROMs first hit the scene, it was expensive and it was hard to find. Uh, I remember that it took me quite a while just to get a CD player, much less a CD-ROM for my computer. So um, this is definitely early days for that. But again, they wanted to be on that bleeding edge of yeah. this technology. Yeah. Uh, that next year, 1988... That's when that little lovey-dovey relationship between Apple and Microsoft turns a little sour. Yeah, that was when Apple filed a lawsuit against Microsoft. Um, they, yeah. they, they were they were basically saying that Windows uh, looked and felt too much like um, like Apple's own graphics interface. Yeah, and w- which which really kind of Apple had sort of stolen from Xerox. Yeah, uh, that 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 Xerox Alto PC that we were talking yeah. about. Um, Smalltalk being the graphics interface uh, operating system that they were using at the time. A lot of people credit the Macintosh for in. Inventing the graphics user interface and the mouse, which both of those actually came out of of uh, work at Xerox and other research uh, laboratories. Right. But Macintosh was the first computer, the personal first, computer, to make it popular. Yeah, it was the first commercially successful yeah, computer they, that used it. They so. really designed it well. So I mean, not to take anything away from Apple because Absolutely they were able not. to make something that appealed to consumers. Uh, 
now they're saying that that Microsoft essentially was copying them and you know pointing out, hey, Steve Jobs came over and showed you what we were working on, and then you suddenly come up with a graphics user interface. What's going on? Uh, except they were doing it in legalese, so it probably wasn't as uh, flippant as that. <laughs> the lawsuit would last six years. And eventually the court would rule against Apple and yeah. say that Microsoft did not, th- there wasn't enough evidence that Microsoft had actually copied Apple's approach. And so, uh, this, this would eventually turn out to be a fruitless effort on the part of Apple. And it was not the only time that Apple and Microsoft would clash, obviously. Certainly not. Um, also in 1988, uh, Microsoft became the world's largest PC software company based on sales. Huge. So they were doing pretty good. Yeah, they they were not it was not too shabby. Uh, business is booming. In 1989, they released Microsoft Office 1.0, both on standard disks and on CD-ROM. Uh, so Microsoft Office 1.0. This again is the beginning of the productivity software suite that many of us are familiar with. Uh, I've been using some version of Microsoft Office for what year is it? Uh, 2013. Uh, probably 15 years now. Mom. Wow. Um, maybe maybe more than that. Actually, way longer than that now that I think about it. Uh, but it, it was one I of... Used, I used Lotus for a long time. Yeah, I so, did too. Yeah. I used WordPerfect mm-hmm. as my word processing program of choice for ages. On purpose. Wow. I, I, well, I preferred it. <laughs> I knew that you if you wanted to bold a word, you hit F8. Um, and, and so anyway, this... Uh, the suite would become incredibly important to Microsoft. It becomes one of their flagship products. If you think about Microsoft as far as the software side, their flagship products, I would argue, are Windows and Office. Those are the two big ones. They, right, right. They do um, lots of other stuff, obviously, but those are the two, I think, that are kind of the cornerstone for what uh, Microsoft software is all about. Absolutely. And also this was, um, this was one of their big moves in, in, in bundling software products together. Yeah. Which would become very important and kind of legally contentious. Um, yes. Later on. Yes. 1990. Microsoft then ships Windows 3.0. So here's the version of Windows that starts to look more like the stuff that we're used to. And uh, within two weeks of, of launching Windows 3.0, the company has sold 100,000 copies. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a lot to you, but keep in mind, this is 1990. It's before computer adoption has really grown that large. Not everyone has an IBM-compatible computer, uh, and those who do, not everyone has an IBM-compatible computer capable of running Windows 3.0. This was one of those things that I found uh, initially off-putting by graphics user interfaces. I was I was brought up learning DOS, so I used DOS all the time. I did not like the idea of a graphics user interface, not because I thought that this was going to be, you know, dumbing down my experience, but rather that I thought, why would I want to dedicate so many of my computer's resources to running an operating system? When I'm perfectly capable of doing this on my own. Yeah, I just want to be able to play my games. But then more and more of my games became Windows games, not DOS games. And eventually I was forced to become one of the herd of sheep. <laughs> now, I say that all mostly in jest. At the time, I was very bitter about it. These days, I mean, if you were to put me in front of a DOS computer now, I'd be... Lost. Yeah, me I, too. I, I, Not that I was a, ever particularly found in DOS. I, I, I never, I never really used it myself. I would just, I, you would, all you would hear from me, Lauren, from my desk is, "Where's the start button?" Aw. Yeah, that's kind of 
the only thing I would be able to say over <laughs> and over and cry. I'd cry too. Um, but at any rate, 3.0 launches, sells 100,000 copies. Uh, only 15% of households back in 1990 even had a computer, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So not that many people have computers. So 100,000 copies is a significant number. Uh, Microsoft decides at that point that they will focus exclusively on developing Windows rather than supporting both Windows and further versions of DOS, also known as OS2. Uh, now, this is not great news for IBM. Right. They were not terribly happy with this, but Microsoft said, you know, we see where the future is. The future is going to be in this graphic user interface. Um, as more and more people adopt these computers, they're going to want something that's that's more accessible than a blinking cursor where they have to figure out what code they need to type in in order to get stuff done. So they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to just completely focus on developing the Windows operating system. That same year, John Shirley retired as president and COO, and he was replaced by Michael R. Hallman. Formerly was, of uh, Boeing. Yeah, which is interesting, right? I mean, you're going from Tandy, which was another, you know, that was at least within the industry, to Boeing, which you could argue was, you know, related to, but outside the industry of computers. Uh, however, of course, keeping in mind, this is for the person who's doing the administrative, the the the, the corporate oversight of the day to day workings of a company, not right. Not it, the they're, they're not actually talking about sure. Yeah, so uh, keeping that in mind, it makes more sense. Um, now, at that point, uh, it had been 15 years since the company had been founded. So, 15 years after the founding of the company. They were in a pretty secure place financially. They had had a very successful IPO, and uh, by 1990, their revenue was at a staggering $1.18 billion. They were the first software company to get over a billion dollars in revenue a year. And this was also the year that the uh, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, began kind of poking into um, some antitrust kind of kind of issues, right? So they but, didn't they didn't launch an official investigation yet, but just thought, hey, that sounds kind of like Microsoft might be muscling out some competition. Like you were saying, Lauren, this idea of bundling software, I mean, it makes sense from someone who wants to have a lot of uh, utility in their software and have cross utility, right? Uh, like, yeah, let's and, say and, and especially if you've already, um, l- like many of the programs in the Microsoft Office suite, a lot of the base coding is is the same. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and it's built up, you know, just in different ways. Well, especially when you get later on into Office where you want to do something like embed a chart that you created in Excel into a PowerPoint spreadsheet, but you don't want to just copy and paste a picture in. You want it to be Functional. Kind of, yeah, kind of like a living chart. So that mm-hmm. way, let's say that as it gets closer to your time to present whatever the uh, the presentation is, the, your numbers get updated. Well, instead of having to go in and uh, and copy that picture again and then paste it back into a new version of the presentation, if if your systems are connected, then what you can do is go into the Excel sheet where you generated the the image in the first place and just change the numbers there the cells right and it up. updates mm-hmm. right yeah so now grad that is later on that's not the earliest version of, sure, of no, microsoft no, office no. yeah and in, in, in these days the, the ftc was really looking at um the, the relationship that ibm and microsoft had yeah. and uh and the way that dos was being propagated uh, across all ibm computers at the time right it's it's one of these things where they they start wondering if there's maybe some anti-competitive practices being put in place right uh so that would become a more important part of Microsoft's history shortly thereafter. Yes. Uh, in 92, that's when Forbes 
proclaims that Bill Gates is the richest man in America for the first time at $6.3 billion in net worth. Uh, Bill Gates would end up being richest man in America several times um, over the, the next several years, and uh, it would flip-flop back and forth between other people, and eventually uh, he becomes the richest man in the world a couple times, too. So uh, pretty phenomenal. Uh, Mike Hallman, at that point, uh, leaves Microsoft. Uh, you know, Remember, he had just joined as the president back in 1990. In 92, he leaves. So at that point... The company does something interesting. Rather than appoint a new president, they created what they called the Office of the President, which was held by uh, three executives. Three executives would be the people manning the Office of the President. So it's almost like a triumvirate. It's the tribunal. Uh, you have what? Uh, Brutus. Uh, you have... Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, no, it was... Um, so the, the Office of the President was held by three executives, and those first three were Steve Ballmer, so uh, he had stuck with the company all this time and now was the worldwide sales and support uh, uh, guy. And that's the part that he oversaw as part of the office of the president. You also had uh, Frank Gaudette, who oversaw worldwide operations of the company, and Mike Maples, who saw uh, oversaw the worldwide products for the company. All three of them, as the office of the president, reported directly to Bill Gates. And that same year, Microsoft's stock split. And a stock split is when the value of a company keeps on growing, but they want to be able to have uh, – it's, it's kind of complicated. But the idea is that you have – when you first have the, the IPO, you have a certain amount of stock, a certain number of shares that are available, right? Mm-hmm. And each share is worth a certain amount. And when you multiply those two numbers together, the number of shares times the value of the share, that kind of gives you a valuation of the company. Uh, if a company's value continues to increase, you may consider splitting up that stock so that instead of the stock being incredibly expensive, you have decreased the value of individual stocks. However, in order to compensate your shareholders, you give them more stock. So it could be this would be the first in, in the series of several splits that would yes, go on over the next yeah. few years. So essentially what it means is it allows the company to increase in value without stock price getting so high that no one wants to buy or sell it. Uh, I'm drastically oversimplifying. So all of my, my business majors out there who are screaming at me, mea culpa. But, um, <laughs> and for those of you who aren't liberal arts majors, I'm sorry. Uh, so anyway, um, the stock split showed that this was a company that was going to continue to grow in value, or at least that was the, that was the hope, as it turns out. It was hope that was well placed. And, uh, Bill Gates that year received an award. From the president of the United States. George Bush, the first. The first George Bush, yes. Uh, And that award was the National Medal of Technology for Technological Achievement in Technology and Tech. (laughs) I may have uh, added a couple of extra A couple extra techs in there. There there were two technologies in the Medal of Technology for Technological Achievement, which I think is already so, uh, you know, it's it's self-referential. Uh, in 1993, they released the Windows NT platform, which was an enterprise software. Enterprise, of course, means companies. When you talk about enterprise software, you're talking about software specifically designed for other corporations as opposed to individuals. So that's what Windows NT was, and it was kind of a client-server solution. Um, and then uh, at that, that same year, uh, IBM saw Microsoft overtake it in corporate value. So the company, Microsoft, becomes more valuable from a, a sheer numbers perspective than IBM. That's 
amazing. The, the huge company for which Microsoft got its, most of its early revenue, apart from, you know, the early, early days with Apple, is now worth less than the actual software company. <laughs> right, right. That's um, pretty phenomenal. That was, that was. I, on, on the slightly less awesome route, uh, the investigation that the FTC had sort of begun got passed over to the Department of Justice, which yeah. basically meant that it was getting, it was getting serious. Yeah, now, now it's gone from, I wonder if those people are up to no good to, those people are probably up to no good, and we're going to look into it much more seriously. Right, right. Uh, this would not be the only time that Microsoft would deal with these sort of things. One of the one of the issues you get when you get really, really successful in your industry is sometimes you might, through your certain uh, practices, uh, discourage other people from entering that industry. Whether you mean to or not, that can uh, be seen as anti-competitive, and that can get the government of uh, Governments from around the world, really, on your case, because, again, the United States, we're talking about the U.S. specifically here, but they are not the only entity that has looked into Microsoft. by far. We will get into that a little bit more later on. Yep. That's the same year, also, 93, is when company introduced Microsoft Encarta. It was a multimedia encyclopedia on CD. Did you ever see the Encarta? I, I owned ones? Encarta, yeah. I owned Encarta as well. I remember Didn't everyone own Encarta? I think was there I, anyone who I think didn't? you were required to own Encarta. <laughs> like there were there were a couple if you owned a a computer that was uh uh running in Windows, you were essentially required to own Encarta and possibly four hundred and seventy three AOL discs. I, I had approximately that many, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it just gets um, sent in the mail all the time. I used to make costumes out of them. It was great. It, it, but it seemed, I mean, Encarta seemed like the incredible future to me. That was, that was one of those early things that I, I remember. I mean, not, not, you know, one of those original things that I remember thinking like, like these computer things are really here and they're really doing something interesting. Yeah. Now keep in mind, Encarta, this is before we as plebeian people have access to the internet unless right. we're we didn't you know, have wikipedia and, you yeah know, we didn't not... have we, yeah we did, there was no World Wide web at this point so or at least World Wide web was so young in 1993 that hardly anyone knew about it technically there was a World Wide web because uh tim berners lee had actually invented the first web page but sure sure and, but and in 93 that's and like still you said, early you know, days. Every, everyone had aol discs and yeah i can remember i think the first time i saw a, a web page was maybe maybe late 93 or early 94 it was when i was in college dating myself here i was in college and i remember seeing someone navigating using something called a web browser to navigate a web page and I took a look at it, and it took a really long time for it to load up, and it was pretty primitive graphics, and I thought, I'll never take off, and I'm just going <laughs> to use my Telnet program. Uh, Speaking of dating yourself, uh, people who were dating at the time uh, got uh, <laughs> That's an interesting segue. 1994. <laughs> yeah, 1994, um, uh, Bill and Melinda got married. Yep. That um, was a that was a, a obviously a very important uh, time for, for the two of them, and uh, they have created together not only an amazing family, but also a phenomenal philanthropic organization that we'll talk about in our next episode. In fact, before we get to that, however, I did want to mention that uh, 1994 was the year that uh, Microsoft agreed to a federal consent decree, which was the outcome of this entire uh, FTC Department of Justice investigation at the time. Um, and, and what they were doing was um, they, they had been... Uh, entering into these license agreements in which, in which PC makers had been agreeing to pay a licensing fee for DOS with each 
model of a computer shipped, even if that particular computer did not contain DOS. Wow. Um, Interesting. So that was, and, and, and the federal government was like, that, that's not cool, guys. Yeah, let's, could you knock that off? Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, so, so, so that was, and, and that was kind of the first thing, and this would come back in a minute. Um, yeah. Well, more like in several days, because we are going to take a break here, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be the end of part one of the Microsoft story, because we have so much more to say, and we don't want to have a two and a half hour long episode about it. So we're going to take a quick break here for us and a slightly longer one for you. And uh, if you guys have any suggestions for things that we should cover on future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a type of technology, a type of software, a personality in tech, or you just want to hear us take yet another film and deconstruct it in our eyes of tech and science, let us know. Write us. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com or get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook. You can find us there with the handle techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 